Good morning and welcome to ULEAD, the news and current affairs from Dalhousie and the University of King's College, nestled on unceded, unsurrendered Mi'kmaq territory. I'm your host, Carly Shogner. If you appreciate the platform CKDU gives to the Halifax community, please pitch in whatever you can during the next two weeks of the 2018 Fund Drive. On Tuesday night, historian, author, and poet Dr. Afua Cooper of Dahousie's Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology gave a lecture at King's on the ownership of her womb, black women, reproduction, and slavery in Canada. I spoke with her before. So welcome. Thank you. So this is a very interesting topic in regards to reproduction and in the discussion around slavery. How did, how did that first come about in your study, in your field? Well, when when we, you're looking at slavery and you look at how slavery reproduced itself as a system, it goes back um, to to black women's bodies because women are the people who get pregnant and have children. And there was uh, was a time when this philosophy or ideology um, developed in slavery or in the enslavement process that. Um, the a slave's identity came from its mother. Um, so there's two ways to reproduce slavery. That was one way, through the female lineage. And the other way was simply by replenishing the, the slave force through bring it, by b- bringing in new slaves, that is buying new people. But as, it, um, a, as the slave systems developed throughout the Americas, the slaveholders encoded it in law um, in, in many ways, turning the law, the familial law, upside down. Because in Western society, children um, um, took the status of their fathers, social status of their fathers, not their mothers. That's why we have our father's name, right? Um, under slavery, the slave masters changed that for, for black people. It says, no, any, any issue from the slave woman's womb must be a slave, and that's how you, one of the ways you identify a slave. So the paternity of the father is irrelevant in in that sense. It didn't matter who impregnated this woman because what issued from her womb would be enslaved. And many uh, slave masters really took advantage of that by impregnating their female slaves themselves because they're getting a couple of free slaves. Let's say the woman has five children, for example. Um, you know, so when you buy this female person, her body is not, will not, she will be reproducing other bodies that you, so if you buy a woman for a thousand dollars or eight hundred dollars or however much, you're, you're buying theoretically, but it worked out to be so literally in many cases, you're buying many people at the same time. They are not yet born, but they will be born. How much does that, you know, have that impact on uh, reproduction and love versus rape? Like, how, how does that resonate within your studies and to really discuss around, you know, reproduction and, and giving birth and raising children and, yeah. Well, well, black women's reproductive rights, even after slavery, have been compromised within the slavery system. And when I say the slavery system, I mean everywhere from Canada to Argentina, um, this this notion or this principle is called 
partus secutor ventrum. It's Latin meaning the child follows the condition of the mother or issuing from the womb. And so in all of the slave systems throughout the Americas, that was the principle, a uh, key principle that was used to, um, to, to, to regulate slavery and regulate um, enslaved people themselves. Uh, so, but coming back to the reproductive rights of black women being compromised. So imagine in that situation, she doesn't own herself. Mm -hmm. She doesn't own, own her own body. She doesn't own the children that issues from her body. And then post-slavery, let's we have abolition wherever, Brazil, Canada, Jamaica. And, um, and then you have theories now that says, oh, uh, you know, black women are having too many children. And when you come into the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, so for example, in the United States, you get this discourse about um, sterilization. So thousands and thousands of women have been sterilized without their knowledge. Right, so it, it's it's all, and and even today, then you have this thing about you know welfare queen, and they must take birth control. And I hear the French president um, Emmanuel Macron, and in his recent visit to Africa, saying the Africa's problem is because African women have too many children. You know, um, not about underdevelopment, not about how France has robbed and exploited that continent, not about the um, the trade imbalance that exists between various African countries and France and Europe, not about that. He goes uh, again and is identify African women. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's paternalism, yes. It's racism, yes. But it's also the ways in which white men think from the time of slavery to present time that they know best um, what is best for, for black women and her children and her family. With regards to your work in decolonizing studies, and I, in a, so many of what you say is very similar to my understanding and what we're dealing with the truth and reconciliation. How similar or different in, is in with your, your studies on slavery versus the decolonization around indigenous people? Well, there, there are similarities and there are differences. Sim similarities, if you look at for black people, the post-slavery situation when, when black women's um, sexuality and reproduction was regulated through the, or tried to be, there were attempts, some of them successful to regulate um, black, black women's reproduction. So for example, the, the implant, the nor plant implant that you used to give to women to, it would be put under their skin or they would receive an injection with a form of birth control, which is, um, which was stopped in the developed countries. You don't use that in the developed countries. Um, but those methods are still used in the global south. Mm -hmm. women, young women, 19, 20, are still given injection, right, to, to stop their fertility. So we, we, we see in many instances, Aboriginal women also had their fertility limited or att attempts to limit their fertility and, and their fertility and reproduction compromised. Difference or a major difference is that um, at the national level in Canada, we've had the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission, which is fabulous. Um, and so there is a, a, a commitment 
from the federal government to adhere or to put in practice all the recommendations. There were over 90 recommendations. Um, you don't have that for the black community. You still have the federal government saying, well, um, yes, we had slavery, yes, but that was before Canada was Canada. That was before 1867. And if you want to talk about slavery, then you have to talk to Queen Elizabeth because Canada was still a colony. Of course, that is, that is a cop-out. <laughs> and there are many instances in which the federal government, or whichever one, this one, the past one, um, have rectified situations that happened before 1867. So now they're making this exception with regards to slavery. But when we look at um, colonization, colonization of black people, in, in, in many ways, when you look at places like Africville and Preston and other places across Canada, um, uh, black people were segregated and, and, and um, denied uh, many economic and social uh, educational opportunities. So we can um, attempt to deal with those situations the post-slavery situation, the post-slavery legacy, and even black people who are trying to, outside of Canada, that's immigrants who are trying to come in. There was a ban on black migration for about 100 years. Um, because when 1867 came and we had confederation, the, the state, which was a settler state, was theorized or really conceptualized as, as the immigra immigration officials said, um, conceptualized as a white man's country. And then they were, um, it was an integral part of immigration policy, immigration law, to keep out the so-called colored races, right? And that was enforced for 100 years. And there was particular attention paid to, to the black body as not being the kind of body that was needed in Canada. But if, if that's coming from the, the immigration department, um, with regards to black people who, from whether the United States or elsewhere, who wanted to come into the country, then you have to think, what about the black people who are living here? You know, clearly then, whichever government it is, federal or provincial, had very little regard for these people, and we know that. We know, for example, in Nova Scotia, how black communities were marginalized and, um, and ostracized and denied even basic educational opportunities. So those issues are still outstanding. And I'm, I'm hoping communities um, rise up and, and make certain demands of our various governments. Speaking of that, um, well, King's is doing a inquiry in regards to its connections, ties indirectly, directly to slavery. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it comes at a good time or um, yeah, any yeah, I think it comes at a good time. I think it's great that Kings is doing it. Um, you know, I think we are living in a time right now where there there are a lot of cracks. The, the the doors doors are opening. Doors are being cracked open. Doors are being pushed open, and in almost every sphere, every aspect, you have you know the Black Lives Matter. Um, the Me Too movement. So it's it's like there there's a moment right now, and it's it's not going away. It's not something you're gonna hear in the six o'clock news and then you don't hear it again. So these inquiries about 
whichever university it is. In this case, King's Dalhousie is also doing one. I'm leading a panel for Dalhousie. Is they 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 do have a past, right? Well, the sign outside uh, the on Coburg for King's it says founded 1783, right? That's a long time. 1783, we were like in the throes of colonialism. So what what does that mean? So it, it's great. It's great that. Um, folks here are doing that inquiry. King's journalism student and a member of the equity committee, Jade Tynes, facilitated the event. We spoke on her thoughts on the talk. Um, so the, the talk was really interesting for me, uh, the, the existence about how gender and race intersect uh, in a historic context is obviously very interesting, but also when Afu at the end spoke about how she hopes that it impacts today's existence of how race and gender intersect specifically around like black women's rights to their reproductive system uh, I think that that's what's really powerful about the work that she's doing it's again it's not just about history it's about how history is currently reflected in today and it's also really important the correlations that she was making with Canada and the U.S. She wasn't just speaking about a Canadian context and she wasn't, which is so common, speaking in a U.S. context and speaking about slavery, but she was layering them or weaving them into one another to show the similarities of it. And when she laid out the existence of how legislation and law was created in Canada at the time or when it wasn't yet Canada, how it took the influence of the like Western Indian legislation and the Virginia Act and the French legislation and obviously British legislation and kind of created this hybrid and pick and chose what it wanted to use in order to benefit oneself, oneself being like white settlers. I think that was really interesting as well. Uh, and it's an important piece, not just the specific stories and the impacts, but also how those laws and how these systems existed both formally and informally here in Canada. So Kings is doing uh, a inquiry on slavery in its past. Um, do you hope that she will be part of that? And what do you think about that? Um, she's So the list came out of those who are actually doing the research and she's not formally part of it. Uh, she did that work for Lord Alhousie in the inquiry there. And she's probably really tired from that, <laughs> which I understand. Uh, but at the same time, I think that informally there is definitely going to be some communication and some insight, even around processy and how that work is done. Because you're sifting through, as you can see through the talk tonight, there's so many slides and there's so much information and bills of sale and um, depositions and legal cases and all these different things that you're reading. And even just like the wording and the language is in itself is something to kind of equate yourself to and get to know. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of like informal knowledge sharing that's going to be happening from the established committee here at King's that's looking into it's King's past ties to slavery and Dr. Fuo Cooper's work with Lord Ahazie and the inquiry there. What do you hope as a student uh, that will come about in regards to uh, research in regards to, to slavery in our past? Well specifically for King's as a King's student I just see there's value in knowing our history no matter what, 100%, but it's a, such a missed opportunity if it doesn't actually correlate into direct action, specifically benefit and even the R word, I have no problem using it, reparations for black students, especially black African Nova Scotian students. I'm, I th yeah, I'm the only African Nova Scotian student I know at King's. Um, I know there are two 
two students whose one of their parents is from the Valley. Uh, we met at the Racialized Students Collective. Could be wrong. Again, I haven't met every single person at King's, but King's is a small place. Um, and I spoke with the president not too long ago and asked him about, you know, the lack of representation here because it's it's so close and it's accessible and it's liberal arts and there's all these types of people in my community that are interested in the courses that are provided here. So there is a lot of work to do for Kings. Kings is like definitely far behind and I hope this inquiry lights a fire to make sure that there's actual proper resources put into place to ensuring that African Nova Scotian students have access to education here but they have access to education with their context of reparations. It's important. You're listening to ULEAD on CKDU 88.1 FM. If you're curious about radio or want to share stories, come by and volunteer with us at our studio located on the fourth floor of the Dalhousie Student Union Building. Poverty and injustice are about not having access to shelter and honorable wages. Media being handled by the people themselves. Today we march in solidarity with current, past, future and potential students here and around the world. Don't just stand there, own your media. Help cover the issues that matter to you. Join the Halifax Media Co-op and share your perspective. We want your ideas, articles, photos, audio and videos. Visit halifax.mediacoop.ca and pick up a copy of The Tide or The Dominion at cafes around town. We are upholding the loftiest, loftiest ideals and aspirations of a just society. On March 5th, King's had its election process and its hiring staff for the Watch magazine. The online print magazine provides paid positions and freelancing. Nicholas Frew and Kristen Thompson were re-elected as co-editors-in-chief. Isabel Reitenbeg was newly elected as online editor, and Jessica McIsaac was elected as publisher. I spoke with Jessica McIsaac. So, what made you decide to apply for this position? Well, I'm a fourth year student now. I'm going into my fifth year and uh, I completed my minor in journalism um, just last semester and I already miss uh, kind of participating in journalistic assignments. Um, and I've read The Watch all throughout my years at King so far and um, it's had its issues every, like it's had different issues every year. And I just really liked how they presented it this year. Uh, kept up with a lot of current events uh, at King's and I want to continue that streak and really figure out what uh, students uh, want from the publication and make it uh, really representative of the King's population. What will you feel like you'll get out of this position? I think it'll give me a lot of hands-on experience uh, running the magazine. Um, it'll definitely get me more in touch with uh, different faculties and the different students that are both in journalism and outside of journalism. I know the journalists have more opportunity. I know there's also like the Dal Gazette. What is about the watch um, like that you see in it? 
Well, because the watch is uh, predominantly mostly a King's publication, it uh, does uh, cover things that are very close to what um, the students here want, things like wardy events, um, uh, issues with our particular student council, uh, what's going on around campus. And so uh, while the Dal Gazette gives readers like a glimpse into um, Dal student life, uh, the, the watch, I think, uh, really helps out students at King's uh, get to know uh, more about their student population. Isabel Reitenbeg. So what made you decide to apply for this position? Um, well, I'm in fourth year, and I just started writing for The Watch this year, and I really got pretty into it. At one point, I was doing my watch stories pretty much above all my other schoolwork, so I wanted to get more involved and also like build up my resume a little bit. What do you think this position will give to you? I'm really excited to be able to work with just like other students in the J school and at Dal and just Kings. I just don't meet a lot of people outside of my classes, essentially. So I'm, I'm really excited to just meet everyone who contributes to the watch and work with them. Do you have a form of journalism that you prefer? Definitely like print, like digital or uh, paper. Um, I am not a huge fan of TV uh, broadcast I love. In terms of like types of stories I like to tell, Definitely very into like feature stories, human interest, and sort of explainers about issues that I'm interested in. Um, Where can people expect to see you next? I will, starting next year, be having office hours, so I will be there every once in a while. And from Nicholas Frew. So the Watch Magazine positions are decided through elections. Can you just tell me how that process happened? Uh, well, every year we have our annual general meeting and part of that is it's a contributors meeting but we also let our contributors and whoever wants to show up know that basically how the magazine did that year um, it's in our constitution that we elect our positions and the way that works is you can vote by having at least contributed once in the academic year or you can run for a position if you contributed at least twice. In terms of any constitutional changes that we want to make, you can just show up and vote. It doesn't matter if you contributed or not. So you were also editor-in-chief last year. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your role? Myself and my co-editor, Kristen Thompson, we run the print and uh, we kind of run most of the show in terms of pitching stories, making sure uh, the magazine is picked up, distributed. And a lot of our stories go up online. So this year, um, unfortunately, a problem for our online was that we couldn't get any contributors for many stories other than, you know, maybe a music event or a concert. So whatever we had for print was pretty much all of our online content as well. It's kind of balancing all the content, make sure things run smoothly, and um, just working with reporters and making sure they're meeting their deadlines and we're meeting hours and getting things out on time. What has this position given to you as an opportunity? It's given me an opportunity to look at what it's like on the other side, I guess, of, of a newsroom. Obviously, as a reporter, you're given the assignment or you pitch the assignment, you go write it, and you have that back and forth, and then it's published. Uh, for the editor, it's the exact, it's almost the opposite in that you know things need to be put out and you need to try to find people to get those things out. Unfortunately, sometimes there's either uh, a lack of manpower or a lack of 
interest in certain stories. So sometimes things are either put on the back burner or one of us might just have to write it ourselves. So I think really it's just given me a new perspective on, dif- on a different position in a newsroom. Uh, was there a level of skill uh, that was required to be in an editor position? I think so. Um, not to toot my own horn, but I am a good journalist. Um, so I think that's part of it. But it, it takes more than just journalistic ability. So you need to be able to have a thick skin um, and really be able to stand by your work. And just time management is big too. Being able to understand what priorities need taking because obviously you know you have your own schoolwork and other parts of your life to worry about as well. But yeah, so it, I guess in terms of skill, it's you need to be good at journalism, but you need to have those other tangibles as well as a person to be able to make it work. Um, speaking of journalism, does everybody have to have a bit of a journalism degree to in order to contribute? Not at all. Um, we have in the past uh, had some Dallas students come over, whether they're English students or whatever, doesn't really matter because part of our job as editors is to make sure that, one, we get material out, but two, part of our job is just to work with the writers to make sure things are in CP, to make sure things are written journalistically. So it really doesn't matter who contributes. We just want people to help write for us. On Wednesday, students from KSU and DSU walked out of a student government round table with the, with the Nova Scotia Department of Labor and Advanced Education in solidarity with the Canadian Federation of Students, Nova Scotia. The department denied the Student Federation from attending a meeting for speaking out for survivors of sexual violence. Hear more next week. Check out Saturday night with the Dahousie Outdoor Society on how to build a campfire on Citadel Hill starting at 6.30. Or check out the play Drums and Organs or the Modern Frankenstein at the Dal Arts Centre. And on Wednesday, check out King's Automated Lecture, Making Up Minds thinking with, about, and for humans on artificial intelligence. And make sure to make a pledge to CKDU's 2018 fund drive. Up next, CKDU Surprise, Democracy Now!, and Terra Informa. Next, a band from Ottawa you can't miss with their eccentric musical retro sounds and progressive lyrics. This is The Peptides with Love Is.